When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word that and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who follow him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel, I have found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in the place where weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to those, the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Thank you, Alyssa Faith, for reading today's passage. Can authority ever be a good thing? A few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a man who had grown up under a communist regime. I asked him, what was it like to live under that authority? His response, everyone had to keep their head down. If you raised your head in defiance, you lost your head. In Canada, we may not compare our authorities with communist control or Taliban rule, but we do tend to view authority negatively. Examples to come to mind quickly. What about the Canadian government and the Roman Catholic Church who took indigenous children from their homes against their will and placed them in residential schools? Note our current conversation around mask wearing and mandatory vaccines. It is a conversation with many different angles, including our understanding of authority. When do we obey government and health authorities? What authority does the church have to encourage mask wearing, social distancing, and vaccination? The conversation in relation to authority gets personal very quickly. We have all had negative experiences with authority, an overbearing parent, an unjust government official, and an irrational supervisor, an abusive boss, or an overly demanding school teacher. At different points in my personal journey, I have struggled with all of these. What about authority in our day? Our time reminds us of the 1960s, one of the most tumultuous and divisive decades in world history. Widespread social tensions developed around human sexuality, racial segregation, women's rights, experimentation with mind-altering drugs, and hard rock music. So much was changing. Baby boomers rebelled against traditional understandings of authority and morality. A saying became popular, don't trust anyone over 30. It was a time of protest. Sixty years later, we are in a similar era. 
For millennials and Gen Zers, trust in institutions has plummeted. Governments and churches are suspect. Families are fragile. Moral wandering is pervasive. Contempt for established power is intense. As in the 1960s, the tensions often run along generational lines. Those in authority are often viewed as those who suppress the opposition, control the weak, and enforce their will on the vulnerable. For some, all institutions and their leaders are inherently evil. Leaders don't keep their promises. To even carry authority is a shameful sin. So in this context, is it even possible to have an objective conversation about authority? At its core, our crisis is one of trust. And it's breeding emotional insecurity, relational distancing, and spiritual despair. When society loses faith in its institutions, the nation collapses. When Christians lose faith in the church, the church collapses. When spouses don't trust each other and parents and children don't trust each other, the family collapses. When we have no one to trust, we experience increasing levels of emotional distress. Our brains were not wired for so much uncertainty, and we self-destruct. So is what we loathe what we really need? After all, authority is not something we can escape from, whether we're talking about family, church, the government, or other institutions in society. Could it be that a healthy understanding of authority would actually bring healing? Would it help us to understand where ultimate authority lies? Could a fresh vision of Jesus and his, his exercise of authority help us? These are our questions today. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has come down from the hillside northwest of the Sea of Galilee. On the way back to the base of his Galilean ministry, the town of Capernaum, he meets a leper, an outcast, a man believed to be cursed by God. What does Jesus do? He stretches out his hand with compassion and touches him heals him. Jesus has compassion on the untouchable. Great crowds are following him. Jesus is different. He has authority to teach hard things and to do hard healings. Healing a leper was like raising the dead. As he enters town, someone unexpected approaches him, a Roman centurion. Who is this centurion appealing for help? Capernaum was an important military garrison town for the Romans. And centurions were the principal military offers of the Roman army. They were the the backbone of the Roman military. Each centurion was in charge of a hundred foot soldiers who had to obey their every command. This centurion was the senior officer in Capernaum. So he would have been well known in this small town of 1500. He appeals to Jesus because his servant situation is desperate. The Gospel of Luke says the servant is at the point of death. The servant, perhaps a personal aid, is highly valued by the centurion. According to Matthew 4, verse 24, Jesus has already healed paralytics in Galilee. So the centurion has probably heard about Jesus' power over this disease. Out of compassion for his servant, he pleads for Jesus' help. Have you noticed how it can be almost as hard for the one who loves the person who is suffering as it is for the person who suffers? 
Almost as hard for the one who loves the person who is sick. Almost as hard for the one who loves the person who has just been discovered to have cancer. Almost as hard for the one who loves the person who struggles with mental illness. Almost as hard for the one who loves the one who suffers abuse. This one who loves feels helpless. That was the centurion. The Roman centurion is distraught. He finds Jesus. Now, Jewish rabbis were often invited to pray for the sick, but the centurion is asking for more than comforting prayer. He wants healing. What is Jesus' response? I will come and heal him. Jesus is willing. He promises to go to his house and heal him. This is a surprising statement. Why? Because it was understood that if Jesus entered the centurion's home, he would be defiled, become ritually unclean. He would have to separate himself from the community. In fact, the only time Jesus enters a Gentile building in Matthew is when he has no choice. At his trial, he's taken into the governor's headquarters in Jerusalem. In this story, the Roman centurion is sensitive to Jewish traditions. Luke writes that he had a good relationship with the Jews. He had built a synagogue for them. He probably knew it would be unreasonable to ask Jesus, a Jew, to enter his home. So the Roman centurion, what does he say? He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. The racial question is at the forefront of this encounter. But Jesus has compassion on those who are excluded. Jesus has compassion on those excluded. Jesus is more than willing to go to his home, but the centurion does not believe Jesus will come to his home. So he says, just say the word, Jesus. Just say the word. Jesus marvels. He's astonished. This is the only time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is amazed. In Mark chapter 6, verse 6, when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, he was astonished by the unbelief of his Jewish community. Here he's astonished at the faith of a Roman centurion. Why? To understand the centurion's faith, we need to talk about authority. We need to understand something about the Roman military system. In the Roman Empire, all authority belonged to the emperor and was delegated to his subjects. The centurion was under the emperor's authority. He received orders from Rome and he issued orders to others. When the centurion spoke to a foot soldier, his words carried the emperor's authority. So his command was always obeyed. There was no negotiation. Hey, centurion, I'm not feeling so good today. I'm not sure I quite agree with this dictate from Rome. Doesn't quite make sense to me. No, none of that. A foot soldier who disobeyed would not be defying a mere centurion, but Rome itself. This understanding of his own authority This centurion applies to Jesus. He calls Jesus Lord. This is remarkable that a commander of the Roman occupying forces would address Jesus as Lord, a member of the subjugated race. Ironically, the man with the most authority in Capernaum shows tremendous respect for Jesus. For him, Jesus is under God's authority. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. The centurion does not believe Jesus needs ritual, magic, or any other help. Jesus does not need to be physically present and touch his servant. For the centurion, Jesus only needs to say a word. Just a word. Does the Bible support this understanding of God's authority? In the scriptures, authority is God's rightful power. 
He alone has ultimate authority. In Genesis chapter 1, God has authority to create the universe with a word. He has authority to sovereignly rule over his creation. He is sovereign over human history. He has authority over all other powers. God has authority to heal with the word, Psalm 107. The centurion's faith is like Abraham's faith. Abraham believed that God could give life to the dead and call into existence the things that did not exist, Romans 4.17. The centurion believes that Jesus can bring his servant back from the point of death with the word. Matthew presents Jesus as having unique authority. The Sermon on the Mount is not presented as something culturally conditioned, time-bound, or optional. Jesus speaks forth God's word. He says his teaching is the foundation for life, the narrow way to life. Jesus uses his authority to show us the way to life, to breathe life. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus has authority to heal with the word, to exercise a demon with the word. Jesus has authority to speak forgiveness of sins. Jesus has authority to calm the wind and the waves with the word. Jesus raises the dead. His miracles authenticate his authoritative teaching. His disciples can trust him. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus delegates his authority to his 12 disciples to work miracles to confirm the Jesus message of the kingdom. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus commissions 72 disciples to proclaim the same good news of the kingdom and heal the sick. In Matthew chapter 28, at the end of this gospel, Jesus says to his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. With this authority, he sends them out to make disciples of all ethnic groups. In our time, we must remember that our authority to share the good news of Jesus and pray for the sick comes from the one with ultimate authority, Jesus himself. No one can tell us that we cannot do what Jesus has commanded us to do. Returning to today's passage, Jesus responds to the centurion's faith with these words. Verse 10, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Truly I tell you. Jesus is making an emphatic pronouncement. I'm telling you, I'm amazed. The greatness of the centurion's faith does not rest in the mere fact that he believes Jesus can heal from a distance, but in the degree to which he had penetrated the secret of Jesus' authority. He seems to understand what very few in Israel understand, namely that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the hope for deliverer. Jesus carries God's authority. And this faith comes from a Roman who did not have the luxury of studying the Old Testament scriptures to help him understand who Jesus was. The faith of the centurion, it previews the declaration of the centurion at Jesus' crucifixion who said, truly this was the Son of God. And the faith of the centurion at Caesarea in Acts chapter 11, who is filled with the Holy Spirit as Peter proclaims the gospel of Jesus. This is a preview of what's coming. And Jesus seizes the opportunity to unveil something about his kingdom. In Matthew's gospel, there have already been hints of people from around the world coming into Jesus' kingdom. In the genealogy of Jesus, we find three non-Jewish women highlighted. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Some of the first to welcome his birth are wise men from the east. 
In chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. People come from Syria and beyond to hear him. But here in Matthew 8, this is the first time Jesus actually declares the inclusion of non-Jews in his kingdom. Jesus is not only willing to break down Jewish religious tradition and slice through racial barriers, but also to have these non-Jews at his most intimate table, to have them at his house. Jesus is saying to the centurion, you don't think I'm willing to come to your house. Here's some good news for you. You will sit at my table in my house. Jesus uses his authority to put us, people from every race, at his table. What am I talking about? Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, this puts emphasis on this pronouncement. It's made to the centurion, all who are listening. The picture is of a a banquet at the end of time, foreseen by the Old Testament prophets and prophesied by Jesus, Matthew 22, 24, 25. A banquet that will fulfill all of God's promises to Abraham, Genesis 12. It's a picture of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Isaiah prophesied about this feast. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's from Isaiah 25. Isaiah prophesied a feast for all peoples. But Jewish tradition had made it an exclusively Jewish gathering. The non-Jews would be on the outside, relegated to the darkness, Jesus sees it so differently. He insists that many will come from the four corners of the earth and join the Jewish patriarchs at the table. They will recline at table. This was the normal posture when eating. People lay down on low couches or pallets. Jesus says many non-Jews will be at the table. It's a word of promise for the centurion and every non-Jew listening. Do you believe that you will be at that table? Why or why not? And then Jesus censures Israel for its lack of faith. Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's heavy language. What is Jesus saying? The sons of the kingdom is a Semitic Semitic term for the nation of Israel. The sons are the Jews who see themselves as sons of Abraham. They believe their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will be at the head of the table with leading roles, and they believe themselves to have an assured place, an assured seat at that banquet by virtue of their Jewishness. The blessings of Abraham are rightfully theirs. Some believe that no biological descendant of Abraham could be lost. 
In Jesus' actions and words, we have a staggering reversal of Jewish expectations. Not only is a Roman servant healed, but he unveils the inclusion of a multitude of non-Jews in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is up for all people, regardless of race. And not only that, many Jews who think they have a guaranteed seat at the table will not be there if they do not make a personal radical reversal. In fact, they will be exiled to that place traditionally reserved for non-Jews in Jewish thinking, the place of outer darkness. They think their place at the banquet is assured, but they'll be thrown aside, consigned to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The language, well, it emphasizes the horror of the scene. This is a graphic description of hell appearing in Matthew over and over again on the lips of Jesus. Jesus has authority to forgive sins and to save those who follow him. And he has authority to cast those who do not fear him, who do not follow him, into hell. Wow, that may scare some of us. Allow me to explain why this is important. Our world cries for justice, but only God has the wisdom and character to bring justice. His judgments are true. Only God has authority and power over all things. Ultimately, only he can work justice. He can declare the worst sinner just and judge the most self-righteous. Jesus has the authority to reverse the expectations of insiders and work justice. Why can he do this? Because only he has the authority to work justice. If we long for an authority that can work justice in every sphere of life, then we will put all our faith and confidence in Jesus. There's a warning for the Jews here. They must not be like those in Matthew 22 who have an invitation to the feast but despise their invitation, their calling. And for ourselves, we must remember that racial ancestry and family history do not guarantee a seat at the table. We do not sit at Jesus' table because of the faith of our father or mother or spouse. A seat at the table depends on our personal faith in Jesus, the kind of faith demonstrated by the Roman centurion. The crucial point for all of us is this. We must follow the centurion's example of faith. And then finally, we see Jesus' response to the centurion's faith. Verse 13, And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus did not wish it. He made it happen with a word. He willed it. Jesus has authority to reverse our situation. Heal us with a word. So in our day, where we face a crisis of trust and we struggle with authority, do we want Jesus? This is the key question of life. Do we want to trust Jesus with our lives? Would we trust him with our eternal destiny? Would we trust him with those we love? Would we trust him to guide history? Would we trust him to heal us? Maybe you are still asking, why should I trust him? Allow me to summarize. Firstly, he's good. He is always good, steadfast in his love, faithful, just, righteous, impartial. We can turn to him in the moment of our deepest need and know he will hear us. Secondly, he not only hears us, but has power to act in love. All things were created through him. He has power over nature. All things on earth are under his divine authority. He's ruling over our human story. He has authority over evil, death, and Satan himself. Fourthly, 
Jesus has power to heal. He has authority to blast through religious strongholds, break down racial barriers, and touch with compassion the untouchable. Jesus has authority to stretch his hand out to anyone and restore anyone. Fifthly, Jesus has authority to place us at his table. He can forgive sins. He can restore the worst sinner who exercises faith in him and justly remove from his kingdom all who choose their self-seeking, independent ways. Sixthly, we were made to live under his authority and trust him. We actually need him desperately. We humans, we need a basic sense of security to thrive. But many of us feel threatened on every level. In our day, even those traits that were once understood to be self-evident, we must now determine on our own. Our identity, our morality, our gender, our purpose, and the place of our belonging. Creating ourselves has become a major anxiety-producing effort, especially in a world where our sense of self-worth is determined by what others think of us, something that can change almost instantly in the world of social media. In this world, Everything feels uncertain. So can Jesus help us? Yes. If Jesus has ultimate authority and power, he can lead us to life. If he is just, he deserves our unqualified trust and allegiance. If Jesus is good, we should run into his arms. He alone can heal our souls. We can rest under his good authority. Now, tragically, many view Jesus' authority like any other authority as a threat. For them, following Jesus is a threat to their comfortable lifestyle. Some think that Jesus threatens their social acceptance. For some, Jesus threatens the very core of their worldview. They believe they need to be at the center. For them, Jesus is good as long as he's just there as a personal advisor, someone they can tap into when they need him. Too often, we want Jesus just as a personal mentor, someone who is there when we need him. Few of us want him to have authority over our lives. But the key life question remains, will we surrender to Jesus' authority? That's where the life is. That's where peace is found. That's where healing happens. Jesus urges us to put our faith in his good authority. He can be trusted There is an invitation for us to sit at his table, but we must decide to surrender our lives to him, follow him, and obey him. Having a place at his table has one primary requirement for all of us, faith in him and complete surrender. Have you accepted his invitation to sit at his table? I want to make that invitation to you today and pray with you whether you are a follower of Jesus or just want to surrender yourself to him for the first time. I'll pray for us, and then I'll leave some questions with you for your reflection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can live under your authority. You are good. You are steadfast in your love. You are faithful. You are just. You are righteous. You are all-powerful. You know all things, and you can work justice. So, Lord, I pray for those of us who are following you. May we joyfully surrender our lives and all that we hold dear to you every day. May we live under your good authority. 
May we allow you to guide us, to lead us, to heal us, to restore us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are present in our lives by your Spirit and that you will never leave us. And Lord, I pray for those who are listening who have never surrendered their lives to you. I pray that they would pray this prayer with me right now. If this is you, pray with me. Father, I thank you for your love for me. I thank you for sending Jesus for my salvation. I thank you, Jesus, that you are present to draw me in, to heal me, to restore me, to forgive my sins. I surrender my life to you. I turn from my independent ways and I turn to you and I say, Jesus, be my Savior. Be the Lord of my life. I want to live under your authority. Lord, bring healing. I need you right now. I surrender my life to you. Teach me to follow you by your Spirit. Send your Spirit to abide in me. In your name, Jesus, I pray. If you prayed that prayer to receive Jesus into your life, I'd encourage you to connect with us or talk to a friend, someone who's following Jesus. You should not walk alone. Okay, and now here's some questions for your reflection.